as much as I love Martin Scorsese, he's not infallible. This is probably for me outside of New York, New York. It's right there with it, I think, in how much I dislike this movie. And I think that the the Scorseseisms, particularly when I'm talking about the voiceover, and having Winona Ryder do a lot of the voiceover really gets under my skin. Because I think that she's badly miscast here. I really struggle with this movie, you know, it's just frustrating because of all the people involved in this. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. So we continue our watch of Martin Scorsese for the second month in a row. And today we are talking about two, I guess, slightly different movies, a, a bit of an odd pairing. We have The Age of Innocence and Goodfellas 2, I mean Casino. Uh, so just to, just to, get, off me. just to get in that joke early before Mike does. Yes. Um, so, Mike. What are you what are you looking forward to? You had said you were kind of looking forward to seeing The Age of Innocence. So, what is your exact mindset going into watching this movie? Cuz this does stand out as seemingly pretty different from Scor- even though Scorsese has a lot of variety in his filmography. This one to me stands out. It's his first real period piece. So, do you walking into this, do you feel like this is something where he's up to the challenge or is this going way outside of that wheelhouse? I mean, he, for me, successfully managed the life of Christ. So I'm guessing, easy, yeah, he, easy. he could handle a little love triangle, you know, with uh, fancy suits and dresses and all that. Corsets, I don't know, bodices being ripped off. Why can't he do that? Um, you weren't a fan of Harvey Keitel with his, like, red hair and, you know, the, the ginger. Get out of my Jesus uh, picture, you ginger. So good, so good, <laughs> Judas. Um, I think he can handle it. I mean, there's a, I think there's a reason... I've not seen this film uh, until this podcast in that, you know, me like period piece, like love triangle, like, yeah, it doesn't really, not your favorite, not really my cup of tea. Um, But since it was new, I was excited to watch it uh, for this podcast. I think he's probably up for the challenge. My expectations are that like with last temptation or even something like Cape fear, there are going to be some little stylistic touches, some things that make it unique to Scorsese or unique to what he was passionate about or interested in at the time, which mm-hmm. usually always shows through, carries through just even for me as the uh, viewer. God, how old is this movie? Like 26 years 26 later. Years. Good yeah. God. Um, but it's got one on the rider in it. And the only thing I like about that is that she was the favorite to win best supporting actress and lost to Marissa Tomei, I believe. <laughs> yeah. This one. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, as we've mentioned, this is right up my alley. And this is also, I think I mentioned on the episode about my history of just not liking things that my sister liked, uh, growing up. And this was one of her favorite movies. So I gave this movie a good three minute try, uh, around that time. And I was like, this sucks and turned it off. So this was, uh, correction. She did not lose to Marissa Tomei. I don't know who the favorite was. She lost to Anna Paquin. Anna Paquin. Oh, the piano. Was she like 12? Yeah. I think she was like the youngest winner in history at that point. Yeah. Okay. So this has nothing to do with the film. What's worse, Dave? Losing to Marissa Tomei from My Cousin Vinny or a fucking child. Oh, a child. A child. Okay. 100%. That's worse. So, All right. I'm I sure can that continue to co-host the show with you then. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this was, you know, essentially a first watch. And it should surprise absolutely no one and certainly should not surprise you that I ate this shit up. Like, I loved every minute of this. I was here for it. I thought the performances were fantastic, all three of them. I like the fact that Winona Ryder, even though her surface level character is a nice person, that underneath she is the most devious and vindictive of all of these double handed people. Like she is whoa, the one you shouldn't whoa. trust. Why? Yep. Why? Like what? Because she wants the man she's no, engaged because, to, to because, not step out. Because she knows exactly what is happening and never calls him on it, but just says enough to make him stop. Like she's never going to have a fight with him. She's just. She says she's very efficient. In her words, which I love. It's great. Hold on a minute. Are you, you are, this is like victim blaming here that (laughs) she knows her, her absolute puss of a husband enough (laughs) to know that he has no follow through. (laughs) Nor does he like, okay, like, you know, I have different viewpoints on this because I, after I watched it, like I sort of read, because I had in my head that she was like, oh, she was supposed to win for this. The whole time I'm thinking, 
God, this is a thankless part. Now, yeah, you're kind of the Debbie Downer and you're kind of the buzzkill. But I'm like, what? What? And so even after reading it, it's like, oh, she's horrific. She's the movie's villain. And so you got that. I did not. I didn't get that at all. But I do think she's definitely the smartest person in this movie. She knows exactly the circles that she moves in. She knows exactly what to say that she never appears bad, but she always gets what she wants in each moment of this movie. I don't know if I agree with that either. I, no? I, I, okay, here's my biggest, my chief complaint. My chief complaint and the thing I guess I also like about the movie the most. Is there a single person in here happy? No. With how anything turns out? No. Even Winona Ryder. Nope. Like, is she actually happy? I, I, I she's this... as happy as possible given the circumstances, <laughs> but she's not happy. No. <laughs> I mean, so are people that like have survived a car crash and are like pinned underneath Made very heavy metal. <laughs> yeah. They're happy moments. Still breathing, buddy. <laughs> they're not in a good place. No. Um, okay. So this is, I'm assuming this is catnip for you. This oh, whole, yeah. Yeah. It's this drawn out melodrama, this, yep. this love that can never be consummated yep. except oh, through great. some, not even heavy petting, just some like hand holding through gloves. Um, oh, maybe it's so good. The gloves. It's so good. Just like uh-huh. unbuttoning the glove and just a touch of skin to skin. That's enough. It's great. I love it. Eat it up. I, yeah, God, I, I would say the first, like, I struggle with this. Uh, you know, super fans uh, go back to John Ford's The Informer. I probably, I don't know how long it took me to get through the first half hour of this, where I'm just like, who and the what now? Like, what uh, who, what, and who are we talking about? Where are we? Why do I care? Like, it's just, I it knew being that this would be the reaction as I was watching this. The like... world's most boring party, where, you know, <laughs> and you've got this obnoxious narration. Um, which I actually, I actually dislike the narration. Like I, I, I warmed the movie slightly, but I think the narration's pretty bad. And I can only assume I also, it's because I also don't think the narration is totally necessary. Like I feel no, like I, I feel like it's one of those moments um, where Scorsese, to his detriment, doesn't trust the audience. Or is it just uh, doing right? from his viewpoint by the, the by the novel. Yeah, yeah. That's a possibility. Cause I know he adores the novel and it right. is from, every, I haven't read the book by Edith Wharton, but from everything I've read, like this is very faithful uh, yes. to the book. Um, so he may have been too faithful in that way. Cause you've got Daniel day Lewis. Um, you've got Michelle Pfeiffer and I think they, they emote very well, not for the actual characters, because there's this assumption that that's there's some some sort of danger to them, like mm-hmm. displaying really any emotion, I guess, other than <laughs> gratitude to someone. I don't know. Gratitude for like, isn't it great being rich and we all want to continue being rich? <laughs> that seems to be kind of what they're like talking around. And I think that's the hardest part of the movie for me is like there is a separation from the audience in this movie where it's like, yeah, but is your life really that bad? Like, even if you can't be with that person that you love, like, that sucks. But, like, you know, oh, I guess we'll just go buy a house because this isn't a fashionable place for you to live. Like, that's the biggest next problem on their on their plate, you know. So I think you have to really dive into the if the relationship between them doesn't work, then this movie will be a very rough sit (laughs) because it's like, why should I care about these rich people's problems? Why should I care? I didn't. I also didn't know that this was a box office failure. I, I thought this was a hit. For some reason, or like you know, a modest success. You know, I did too. I felt like it at least like kind of broke even, made a little bit of money. Cause like, I don't know. I know a lot of people that it, even before the days of film Twitter and all that, mm-hmm. I knew a lot of people who saw this and really loved it. Maybe it found its audience when it came to video. Uh, maybe, maybe it just didn't, you know, but it, it's interesting as I'm watching more and more of these movies, Scorsese has a lot of these. <laughs> that don't do well. Like, you know, I love his movies, but it makes me wonder in some ways, like, how did this career continue and continue with all these failures? If he started now and had the same career, does he make it past, you know, Raging Bull, King of Comedy? Like, the industry well, might have just been like, we're not giving you a budget. Well, he's kidding? a man, so he probably gets a yeah. Star Wars movie. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> oh, God. It's Scorsese. <laughs> Star Wars movie just there's a there's a director you know I, I like kind of talking around so if you know if we do have any like fans of the show maybe they'll they'll engage engage with this program in some way but uh I've already jumped ahead to like our February selection which I won't reveal let Dave you know do all the fun stuff 
Um, and it's interesting because that director, which has, I guess, been my responsibility, I've selected, has two gigantic failures for mm-hmm. films two and three. And the second one, like I, I was reading an article today that was written like a decade after fact, pretty much predominantly on that, like, wow, that was a disaster. How hard was that to get over? And the director's answer was like, uh, well, I'm not a man. So, yeah, it was pretty fucking difficult <laughs> to like, get another job. <laughs> so yeah. fascinating. I, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of like this type of miss. It's probably a big disappointment to the studio because you have – Dan Day Lewis coming off of Last of the Mohicans, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so you've got him and another like romantic epic of sorts. You know, it's different than an action epic, but it's still like you assume those Dan Day Lewis junkies at that time are going to come back for this. And you have Michelle Pfeiffer coming off of uh, Batman Returns, the fabulous Baker Boys. Like, right. you know, she she's big. Yeah. yeah. And Winona Ryder, uh, you know, Heather's. Uh, did Edward Scissorhands come out at this point? I think so. I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you it feels like everyone could just sort of <laughs> wash their hands of it and be like, you know what? We did everything right. That's It's on nobody. This just yeah. for whatever reason, just didn't and, take. And critically, it did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of Oscar nominations. I guess the the rumor is that Daniel Day-Lewis was also going to get nominated, but he had to choose between two nominations that year because he was also in the name of the father. He was in that the same that year. Still hold for actors. That's I don't still, think so. I, I think you can get nominated more than once now. Uh, but back then you had to but choose. But in the same category or do you have to pick one as a supporting? Ooh, that's a, I think you probably have to pick one as a supporting. Look, the only time I've like I've been aware of it is when Soderbergh got a directing nomination for Aaron Brockovich in Traffic. And he was competing right. against himself, which is totally baller. If you're, if you're right? like a film nerd, it is awesome. Like I would rather be nominated twice than to actually win. Yep. I would rather like have two. Cause especially then when there. you lose, you'd be like, well, I canceled myself out. What do you Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he, he, you know, he won, which is the logical decision to say that's their best director. Cause he had two out of the five spots. Yeah. Try to do that. Marty, why don't you work a little harder and get two movies out in the same calendar year? Um, okay. So I said, I warmed to this a little bit and it's totally on the performances. I actually didn't dislike Winona Ryder because which I am going to count as a huge victory by the way just the fact just that you like, didn't so dislike nominated twice yeah, yeah this is the like Winona Ryder should just be grateful not only that she was just nominated but that I'm giving her a total pass here because I was expecting some big revelation some big speech at the end from her and I'm like man I'm going to hate that I'm going to hate when she gets her big Oscar moment because it's it's not necessarily, and I'm guessing that's part of the muted response, maybe financially, is it didn't get the awards push, like because it didn't. This was not a best picture nominee, was it? No, I don't think so. No. So <laughs> basically, I think it was just it, screenplay and a couple acting. <laughs> Age of Innocence, Cape Fear, same shit. The Academy, yeah. which is funny. <laughs> it's wild, isn't it? Um, I think maybe that it's so muted. That's that's what I liked about. It. I like at the end we don't get some big scene where someone breaks down, like at and it all. does feel like a movie where that's going to happen. Where yeah, someone so, like they're actually going to consummate the relationship and they're going to get okay. caught and they're going to have a big scene and everyone's going to yell at each other and the whole movie is muted. Like all two hours and nineteen minutes of this, I think maybe there's one time where someone raises their voice. Like the rest of it, it's like totally chill the entire the entire runtime, which which is actually kind of nice. And I think fits these characters. I think if someone had a big speech, I think it would kind of ruin it. Like it might have done better publicly if they had done that. But for me as a viewer and watching this movie, I would have been like, that doesn't fit any of these characters. Yeah, I don't I don't think it would be as interesting to think about or talk about I me. Mean, it's got some really it's got some low key moments that will like cut you to the bone like Daniel Day Lewis standing by himself like looking at all this beauty around him he's in an art gallery and he's just having this conversation with himself just saying I'm I'm only 57 I'm only 57 like repeating to himself like you mm-hmm. know as a mantra like there basically there's still time yeah but <laughs> you know he has to he has to actually be this different person that he aspires to be in his like head this sort of fantasy version of himself and like the biggest tragedy is, you know, I called him a puss earlier in this, like right, pretty much minute one. Of what an recording. asshole. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's what makes him and probably, I guess, an interesting literary character, but it mm-hmm. makes him an interesting film character as played by Daniel Day-Lewis, 
because you see every bit of that longing of him thinking, I have the belief that I can be this progressive and that I don't care what people think about me. Mm-hmm. But it's not enough to just believe that about yourself. Like, you know, if, if other people don't recognize it in you, it's probably not there because you're not showing any cards to like. And unfortunately, like, I guess what I like about the romance with Michelle Pfeiffer is I think she knows that too about him. I think she knows that this guy is all talk and she can kind of flirt and she like enjoys imagining a life with him, but she knows it's never actually going to happen. And even when it gets close, she's the one who shuts him down. She basically says like, if you do this with me, then everything I love about you is no longer true. You know, and that is like, I watched that and I was like, oh my God, this is heartbreaking. And, but what's really heartbreaking about this movie is something that you kind of pointed at near the end of the movie when, I mean, he's still in society, but not to the point where like, he's constantly being watched. He's constantly being judged. He's an older man now. His son even says like, you know, it's old shit that no one even remembers or talks about anymore. No one really cares. And he still at the end can't bring himself to cross that barrier. He can't go up to her, to her room. He has to leave. And it's just like there is it's interesting as a viewer for me because there's a there's half of me that is like, just fucking go, go to her, please. And the other half is like, actually, I kind of get it. I get why you're doing what you're doing, even though I would not have been able to say no to Michelle Pfeiffer at this point in her career. I get why you can't. I'm definitely not doing it as a a fucking widower. I'm like, you know, balls out at that point, baby. Yeah, Take your (laughs) shot, man. (laughs) You know, and I think uh, from a directorial perspective for Scorsese, I mean, this is, of course, beautifully shot. There's, you know, all the party sequences that you found, like the most boring parties in the world are gorgeous to look at. And one particular scene, I think maybe my favorite scene in the movie is when they're in that house after they've kind of escaped the snow and he envisions her coming to him and embracing him. And then you realize very quickly right after that, that this is just kind of a mini dream sequence um, for Newman, for Daniel Day-Lewis's well, he, character. Well, he likes to live in that world. I mean, yeah. he has this weird challenge to himself uh, where he sees her looking out at the sea and uh, there's like a if lighthouse. she turns around before the ship passes the lighthouse it's meant to be it and is strangely like, childish it's something like a teenager would do childish but it's control it's controlled mm-hmm. to have the safest possible outcome because <laughs> the point was which he wants her to turn around she's been staring out at not nothing, but she's been staring out at like passively at nothing transpiring in front of her. many minutes. <laughs> so the point that he decides she has to turn around this moment is when this boat passes her sightline. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking just even practically, I'm thinking, well, now she actually has something to look at. You think now she's going to be like, Oh, there's something in my, you know, <laughs> coming across the landscape here. I'm going to turn from it. Yeah. Like, now that now that something is interrupted by nothingness, now yeah. I'm going to look away. And I, I, I dug that scene because I'm thinking like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't actually want this to happen. He he wants to have this uh, internal romance mm-hmm. where he thinks he could have been this great guy. And I, and I don't think the movie even like judges him like oh he's yeah. a complete failure because he didn't because he he had a good life like it seems like even a well the, the obnoxious voiceover yeah. tells us he was a great father and a good you know dutiful husband mm-hmm. seems like he has a good rapport with his kids like there's a great scene where he's like you can tell like how joyous he is just to hear from his son on the yeah, phone it's a great and they're moment. playing the trip and it's like it's such a a throwaway moment and I love like I love Dandy Lewis he has this like light chuckle. Like, just from hearing a son's voice, like, all of that. So, uh, you know, of course, as you do, like, I come in, like, guns blazing. I'm like, this movie sucks. What a pussy. But then I'm like, well, I really like that scene, really like that scene. Um, But, yeah, I think lose the voiceover, um, you know, as Twitter said, whoever that that great Twitter film editor was, you know, Thelma, cut this down a little bit. Wrap it up. (laughs) Not the end, but just tell Marty we don't need so many parties. Not so many party (laughs) moments at the beginning. How about that? Yeah, and I also think that scene that you mentioned, the like kind of ship passing the lighthouse scene, I love that because, you know, like you said, he wants that internal romance. It's much safer that way. But then if she does turn around and something happens, he has something to blame, right? He has fate. He's like, well, I can't control that. It was meant to be. So he lets go of that responsibility, which I think in a lot of ways is what Newland wants for this whole movie. He wants to let go of that responsibility. It raises interesting questions. Like, does he really love 
uh, Olenska? Or is it just like he's seeing this giant future with May and is like, I don't know if I can handle this. And like this other option over here is much less responsibility. She's already left her husband. She's not even really divorced. Like it's, they are, these cousins are polar opposites in a lot of ways. So it makes sense that that's what he would be, that that's what he, he would be attracted by. And I think it's really interesting that May has that sequence where she's like, you sure you want to get married? Because we can just stop. Why should we dream away another year? I'm not sure I do understand, Newland. <laughs> Is it because you're not certain of feeling the same way about me? Is there someone else? Someone else? Between you and me? Let's talk frankly, Newland. I felt a difference in you, especially since our engagement. Since our engagement? If it's untrue, then it won't hurt to talk about it. And if it is true, then why shouldn't we talk about it now? I mean, you might have made a mistake. If I'd made some sort of a mistake, would I be down here asking you to hurry our marriage? I don't know. You might. It would be one way to settle the question. Whatever it may have been, Newland, I can't have my happiness made out of a wrong to somebody else. If promises were made, or if you feel in some way pledged to this person, even if it means her getting a divorce, then Newland, don't give her up because of me. There are no pledges. There are no promises that matter. That's all I've been trying to say. There is no one between us. There is nothing between us, May. You know, he, she does give him an out. Of course, within this society, it's not really an out. Right. Like he's still going to be kind of excommunicated from high society if he does this. But she does say like she does know him very well. I think she knows him better than he knows himself because she's like, maybe you're attracted to someone else. Maybe it, you should just yeah, go. And I think, look, you talked about earlier, there's a disconnect uh, maybe from the, the people watching this film, like because we don't deal with the same problems that <laughs> these elites did in New York like a century ago. But there is something like watching it now where I was thinking, you know, there's a genuine fear about watching what you say or, you know, what you present outside and what, how you generally feel, especially online. You know, mm -hmm. there, there is like the, the lynch mob mentality of like, oh, we're going to like, we're not only going to crush someone, but <laughs> someone like me, who's just a, t a dickhead, could, <laughs> could enjoy the the slings and arrows on someone when I don't even really have an opinion one way or the other. But right. just, if someone just fires off something that's amusing, like oh that's a well crafted insult, like you know <laughs> I can revel in that as well. So yeah, when you're talking about like your fiance saying like no no we could really end this, there has to be some calculations in your mind as far as like is it worth like what happens if I the, say yes here? All the nonsense that's going to come my way and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easy for us to say, like, you know, just do it. You know, go with Michelle Pfeiffer. Just be happy. But would he actually be happy, though? I don't know if he would. Yeah, I, not only would he be happy, but, like, you know, you have to think his entire life changes. Like, yes, he is a lawyer. He makes plenty of money. But, like, would people, would he have a job after this? After embarrassing himself and embarrassing May in the public eye? Like, can he even hang with her? Can he even hang with uh, absolutely no. Ellen? Absolutely I don't not. think so. No, Ellen is Ellen's a free spirit and she's going to do what she wants. And I love that like there's a bunch of there's a bunch of sequences where it's like, you know, if you go for this divorce, he could say some things. And they never go into what those things are, but there he does like as the viewer you're like, "Well, tell me more. What things? Like where's that letter? Like we get all this other voiceover nonsense." There you can, go. Can we... There you go, Dave. Pick on the voiceover. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways these two are very well matched, but I do think that in that relationship, like she would certainly be the dominant one because uh, Newland is just kind of like he's so meek that he's not even willing to make choices that will make him happy, <laughs> let alone make other different sell. choices. It's a hard sell for, uh, you know, just general movie audiences to be like, hey, watch this weak willed man, man be miserable for two hours. And watch him. I think Ibra had a line like you're watching. Uh, yeah, he called it uh, brutal and bloody. The story of a man's passion crushed and his heart defeated. And it's like, oh, well, put that on the 
poster. <laughs> yeah, can't wait. Let's all go see that. Yeah, and I think this is the mark of great actors and great directors. Because if you just put, if you put that description of this character and you put like, you know, where this takes place, when this takes place, if you have anybody but Martin Scorsese and Daniel Day-Lewis listed, I'm probably like, it's a period piece, so I'd still watch it, but I'd kind of watch it like, okay, you're going to have to impress me here. Uh, but given the talent on display here, like Daniel Lee-Lewis really does make that character work in a way that you care. Whereas most other actors, you'd just be like, fuck this guy. Just make a choice. Shit or get off the pot, man. I mean, I think it doesn't line up as far as the time that uh, the greatest living filmmaker uh, had yet made her debut. But as we'll see next month with a better love triangle movie about an indecisive man, it can be done and it will be done next month on this on this podcast. I'm cutting you off and we are going to take a break. Uh, Hopefully you will hear from our supposed expert Hiro from the True Romance podcast or he will probably be talking about how great Casino is, I guess, and that it's not Goodfellas too. So listen to that and we will be right back. I think Casino is a really good movie. I think Casino really stands alone. I think, honestly, Sharon Stone is bonkers in this movie. She is legit out of control and, and in a really good way. I think that she really goes for it, man. She's swinging for the fences. And then you juxtapose Sharon Stone and Joe Pesci, their characters, who uh, Joe Pesci's playing reasonably similar to his Goodfellas character. Um, these wild id characters i think that she shines she really takes the ball and run with it because one could say okay de niro's this classic thespian this guy who's been around for 30 years at the top of his game and sharon stone is you know she's sharon stone but she shows up and i think martin scorsese does a lot of fun things here i mean he's he's revisiting a lot of his tricks from goodfellas yeah but he's he's up in the ante a little bit with some of you know that big open with the fire and all that stuff and it's just a really fun movie. All right, now we are back. Uh, we are back to talk about Casino, uh, an almost three-hour-long movie from Martin Scorsese. If you want to call this Goodfellas 2, it is a sequel in every one of those ways. He even extended the runtime. So, Mike, we have the return of Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci uh, in a Scorsese movie about less-than-legal activity. So... Is this just Casino 2, or does it have something else to offer, even if you hadn't seen Goodfellas? It is uh, it is definitely Goodfellas 2, unless you watch the film as the great Marty uh, intended, which is right after Age of Innocence. Mm. Then I think it's, <laughs> it is a glitzier, uh, sexier trashier version mm-hmm. and i would call it age of innocence too is what i would call it because <laughs> watching them <laughs> in close proximity i was like oh this is like his shame period where he wanted to really watch these characters successful and pretty much everything they intend to do and so they self-destruct with their own internal shame mm. because i think now, I didn't have that take when I watched Casino as a teenager. I did think like, oh, more mob shit from Scorsese. <laughs> mm-hmm. Same. But the thing that I think would be also be a hang up, and it, it's pro- maybe it's a personal one of mine. I know my mom can't really stay in movies like this. Uh, not the violence, not the sex or the, the crime. She thinks that's she used to say that uh, she loved the mob uh, taking over Vegas because it was safe then. <laughs> like <It's> true. She, <laughs> she, she enjoyed their reign over that period, but um, her, one of her big hangups, I guess she passed out of mine is watching characters self-destruct to the extent where you even have not only other characters, but themselves say, yeah, I know I'm making a big mistake here and this could get me killed or this could ruin my life and endanger my child, but fuck it. I'm going to do it. And I guess Sharon Stone is the representation of that for our two male leads. You know, she's the one that sort of brings them down personally and professionally, if you can get past that, if you can say like, okay, there's something more interesting here about this dynamic, then I think there's something here. If you just look at it surface level, though, mm-hmm. I think it could, it could get really annoying for two plus hours. 
Yeah, it's. <laughs> I was just thinking we had our mild disagreement about the interactions between characters in Raging Bull, but this time Joe Pesci's character does fuck Robert De Niro's wife, so there is no going back from that in this movie. So. Oh, so you thought? Uh, yeah. Did, so what you were you were thinking he did yeah. in Raging Bull? I was thinking there was at least enough of a question to make you wonder because he never you're answers. A monster. You're yeah. an animal, just like De Niro yep. in that film. Yep, it's true. Uh, but it. I think you're right, and I think Scorsese knows it um, because there's there's a lot of very quick explanation um, about these characters in this movie where he kind of is, I think, trying to head you off at the pass, where when you're introduced to Sharon Stone's character, and, and honestly, I think Sharon Stone might be the best performance in this movie. She's tremendous. Um, but when she's first introduced, he was like, What a move. I fell in love right there. But in Vegas, for a girl like Ginger... Love costs money. Ginger's mission in life was money. Let me get it See you, Ginger. Okay, thank you for asking. She was a queen around the casino. She brought in high rollers and helped them spread around a lot of money. Hello. Hey, Ginger, how you doing? Great, and I have something for you. You got me covered? Thank you, you there. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. Who didn't want Ginger? She was one of the best-known, best-liked, and most respected hustlers in town. Smart hustlers like her could keep a guy awake for two or three days before sending him home broke to the little woman and his bank examiners. Now you know, going forward, even if she fucks up, even if she does terrible things, you have this preconceived notion that that Sam, Ace, is going to stick with her no matter what. So you you kind of can't be surprised by that. But even even with that knowledge, as I'm watching this, I'm like, you need to get rid of this woman. Like, there is nothing good... This woman keeps going back to James Woods. It's time to just—it's time to cut and run well, at this point. Okay, so it's a movie <laughs> about gamblers, and they're when when you are the house at that point, mm-hmm. you've removed the one like true passion from this guy—the mm-hmm. fact that he can yeah. win at a game that no one can win at. Mm-hmm. So if he's perfect in that way, he's he has to take on some unnecessary risk. And so he chooses to do so with his. You mean being wife, friends with Nikki Santoro isn't enough? Like that guy's gonna ruin well, everything. Okay, for so you. even even Santoro. So I think, yeah, you know, I have a there's a slight Scarface kind of issue I have with the movie. Like I never liked the the Palma movie like at all. Like I think I watched it once. And that's like, this is that's because it sucks, Mike. It's not okay, well, as, a, as a teenager, I was like, this is kind of stupid. Like I don't. Like, I don't even know and if I finished it. And that's when you should like it. Like, that's yeah. the time you're going to like it if you do. And I remember feeling in a similar way about the Pesci character here, whereas it made more, not that it makes more sense, but I felt like it was more earned that we saw, like, how people kind of have to prove themselves, like, within that sort of family dynamic. And here the way the mob is treated, like, you know, you don't really know the connections between these people. You don't see any of them as children. You don't see them growing up, like the effect that they have on the neighborhood. You don't see them taking care of protecting each other before things go to shit here. Pesci's character is a guy that's been tasked with the job, like go protect Mm -hmm. that guy, protect our interests in Vegas. And so what does he choose to do? Uh, He chooses to like run wild and do everything in his power to make it harder for everyone else to do their jobs and is trying to make some little kingdom for himself. So when I looked at this guy, I'm like, okay, is this just like everyone who likes Scorsese's like look at violence? Is this if you put them, if you took them off of film Twitter, would they turn into Nikki Santoro? Where they're like, that's what you do. You can just do whatever you want. And it's like, no, there's still some structure and boundaries, even within yeah. this world of excessive violence and murder and mayhem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and something I find really interesting about the way that uh, Santoro is is performed here, and I kind of love it, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's the fact that like no one, like Joe Pesci is a little man, like he just is. Yes. He's like he's tiny. No one makes a joke about it. No one says anything, and he's just laying people out left and right. Like he is, he's yeah. the tough guy in this. And I kind of respect that nobody, nobody brings it up. Like we're just not going to talk about it. But it does feel a little like, but really though, 
Wouldn't somebody yeah, just knock a, this motherfucker out? He's like four foot six. I'm there like, is come a, on. Uh, there's a sequence later where I guess he's like, you know, he's just worn out from drugs and boozing and <laughs> he can't throw a punch anymore. Blood. Yeah, you can't <laughs> knock a guy out like in one punch. And I'm thinking, could did could he ever? Like, what were they sitting down? Did he hit him in the back of the head? Did, right. did they hit their just head on something? Nut else? shots over yeah. and over again. What are we doing? <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I, so watching it now, I was trying to look at it from that, through that lens. And I still think, you know, it's probably excessive for my taste. Like goodness. Like you, I mean, when you set up compared to Goodfellas, it's a lot. Yeah. And so, and you're there for three hours of this. Uh, and I do think that you run the risk of having people like, are they then rooting for bad things to happen to these characters just because they want to be like free of them? Like, you know, I feel like much more so than in Goodfellas, you are rooting for bad things to happen to a lot of these characters, especially Pesci, where I think when Pesci dies in Goodfellas, part of you feels a little bit bad. Like that kind of, that kind of sucks uh, because you've kind of grown up with this character. Whereas with this, you're just kind of like, man, this guy is making it worse even for his friends fuck this guy and i think you start to feel that about ace too by the end of the movie because he just can't let it go like he's come so far that he can't he's like no i'm gonna i'm gonna have my own tv show now and i'm just gonna talk shit every chance i get it's like <laughs> man just simmer down will you <laughs> like just shouldn't you just enjoy okay? watching football and like you know like right. collecting your winnings like what you've removed all the the fun elements of this to become a guy who's like checking like the dice, you know, to checking their measurements and their weight, like goodness, like, you know, micromanaging everything. Um, I mean, I, it's a cool way to look at it. That it's like, even when the, like the wild West days of like Las Vegas, that there were people there like approaching their job with this like sort of manic en- energy that drained all every ounce of fun mm-hmm. out of this. Out of, And I, I like that, you know, it's probably the only time I agree with the Joe Pesci character, <laughs> Santora, where it's like, what did we come out here to do but to make money? Like, why are you getting in the way of us making money? We're here to rob everything blind. Like, we're, they are basically the Grinch. Mm-hmm. And De Niro's character is stopping him as he's picking up the last crumb. Like, like wait a minute. That's <laughs> over the line. That Now, that's too far. And so, yeah, I understand, I guess, in that one instance uh, where uh, Nick Santoro's coming from. But, um, I mean, it's a... It's not, it's like the, pretty much the entire film for the most part is, uh, the eighties period of boogie nights. So you mm-hmm. get that title card eighties. So after spoiler alert for boogie nights, cause it's, it's, I guess it's kind of unfair. Like, Hey, that's not the title of this episode, but I'd hope if you are listening to an episode on casino, you probably you've seen, seen boogie, boogie nights. nights. Yeah. yeah. I think that's um, fair. So yeah, after our uh, much beloved Bill Macy checks out, I guess would be the way. It's <laughs> a nice way to put it. <laughs> but you know what? I, I we see what happens in the eighties. Maybe maybe that was for the best. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Casino to me is like the eighties sequence of uh, Boogie Nights without the reconciliation of the family, and it's like three hours, like well, let's say two and a half hours of the downfall of everything of what mm-hmm. was once fun. And, you know, in this case, gambling instead of fucking. So Dave instantly knows which movie I prefer based <laughs> well, on <yes>. subject matter. <laughs> um, and I could see that, like, I don't know what was I didn't actually look into this. What was the like, what was the reception to this one? Because I, I think it was a hit, but I don't remember. You know, it's interesting. I was just it. looking that looking that up. And according to IMDb, the budget was about 52 million estimated. And it only made 42 in the United what? States. What? Yeah, I thought this was like a, a a return to form. Like I did too. I thought it made a bunch of money, but maybe no. it made more more money overseas. I don't know, but it did feel like it did feel like from critics it got kind of short shrift because of the kind of Goodfellas two aspect. Like, well, you're just it's really good, but you're going over well trodden ground here. You've done this before. We know you can do this. And so how so, much is as that is De Niro and Pesci? Hundred percent. I think uh, that's like almost a hundred percent of it. Because uh, I think these are very, like all jokes aside, I think these are very different films. And I, But I think Scorsese is aware of it. And I love the fact that like throughout this movie, I should have counted how many times this happens. But it's like, by the way, he's Jewish. He's not like, he's <laughs> yeah. not Italian Irish. The Jew, this Jew guy, this, you know, random Jewish slur. Like, it's just like, it's got to be every 15 minutes we're reminded Oh, Rothstein, he's Jewish. <laughs> it's just like, guys, mm-hmm. we get it. And I do feel like Scorsese was a little nervous about this, like bringing all these guys back together in a movie that 
not only was a hit, but people, a lot of people, when you say Scorsese, they're going straight to Goodfellas. Like it is that part of the of the kind of the cultural consciousness at this point. But I do feel like it's even just kind of got a different mood to it. Like you reference this about how it's more about the downfall. There's like it's a three hour movie, and there's like thirty minutes of a good time in here. Yeah, there's and no like, like even in prison in Goodfellas, they're still cooking yeah, dinner together. Still cooking you know, dinner, they're chopping garlic. Yeah. You know, with the it's great. It's a good time. And here it's just like, and that movie is like a very, very good time until like maybe the last half hour. And then everything goes to shit really quickly. And this is the opposite. The first half hour is like, isn't this great? There's no rules here. We can do whatever we want. And then it's like, actually, uh, you're banned from every casino in the state. Uh, and uh, now you've been caught by the cops. Like the whole sequence where you find out the cops are listening in on this on the sequence. It's like halfway through the movie. Like, it's just like, but we got a long way to fall. And I also mm-hmm. like, I kind of like the, the I, I don't know if you'd call it a twist in this movie, but the very first scene of this movie is De Niro looking great, fabulous suits in this movie. I very, very much approve of the costuming in this movie, but he walks out to his car, he starts the engine and it explodes. So you're like, oh, so he's dead and we're telling his life story. And then you have voiceover from Pesci later. You're like, oh, maybe he's the one who survives. And I like that that's flipped. I like that he actually survives that and kind of <laughs> his his voiceover ends when he gets hit like in the back of the head with a yeah. pipe. <laughs> it's just like But finally my guys got out on bail and the bosses wanted me to send my brother Dominic out to Vegas. Always the dollars. Always the fucking dollars. I mean it was still way too hot for me to even go near Vegas. So I set up a meeting with the guys way out in the sticks. I didn't want my brother to get fucked around. I mean what's right is right. They don't give a fuck about ah! mid-sentence the voiceover yeah and i like that because a lot of times there's a shortcut movies where it's like oh the voiceover is the major character he's the journey we're gonna see that journey until its very end and it's not gonna get interrupted but in this it's like pesci 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 oh look lead pipes bats him and his brother both buried alive like it's like the worst end you can possibly have for this character and i like that kind of feint uh that scorsese pulls here and i think it really works so a lot of the stuff was based on like fact, like was like, mm-hmm. like <laughs> they pretty much took life stories and like, even like the scenario between like a guy that was running casinos for the mob in that case, Chicago, instead of, I think Kansas city in the film, mm-hmm. uh, and having like a Nick Santoro type, uh, who was there for his protection. Also this like love triangle with this, this woman yeah. who unfortunately died of, uh, you know, drug addiction, which yeah. I think the film kind of keeps it, like like the reality itself where it's like sort of unknown if like someone like actually like it was a purposeful overdose like for right. her like when they were cleaning house. Um, but I read that the Joe Pesci character, and his brother, um, in reality, I guess one of those guys from that crew, like we're talking like 15 years after the fact of Casino uh, went to prison. He actually told the truth. And I strangely and, you know, like the way like life imitates art that actually those characters died way more like the Pesci character in Goodfellas mm-hmm. and they were not buried alive as that was just like sort of this legend that like, you know, mafia circles told each other like, Oh, that's what happened to them. So I was like, Oh, so the happy ending was the Joe Pesci character died like another Joe Pesci character in another right. movie, right? which I guess is better. Yeah. And I, you know, I like the fact that, you know, in reading up on this, they did actually simplify the story a great deal. Like, I guess, the Ace Rosting character, like he was working at like three to five different casinos. Which is and unnecessary. A lot of, yeah, yes, you don't yeah. you don't need any of that. And I think it's probably another reason it's seen as quote unquote Goodfellas too. It has the same screenwriter, uh, Nicholas Pledgey again is here. But one thing I just found a bit of trivia online that made me very happy: the costume budget for this movie. Actually, why don't you guess how much do you think the costumes cost in this movie? Oh God, I don't, I don't know because I mean I'm assuming that shit was not off the rack anymore. No. I'm imagining there. Uh, I don't know. I did read that De Niro and Chairstone contractually got to keep their costumes, yeah. but I was thinking, I was like, shit, with the stuff you were wearing, what, where what are you gonna wear are that? you going to wear that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah. The costume budget was $1 million. Damn. Uh, De Niro had 70 different costumes and Sharon Stone had 40 different costumes and they both got to keep all those costumes. Look, I mean, they, you know, they have a lot of premieres to go to, mm-hmm. I guess. Maybe they roll one of those out and, uh, I would I love know. to see De Niro just show up now in like that 
that blue suit like just, i mean it probably yeah. wouldn't fit anymore he's you know he's gained a little weight since this time but i mean I, in my research for next month i'll see what he wore to the uh, premiere of the intern see if it was go. one of these like dumb and dumber like suits that he had for casino so i mean you know we've spent a lot of time on this episode kind of talking about how it's not just a sequel to goodfellas but in your opinion how does this compare like, does this live up to Goodfellas? Is it? I I've been a lot of people online who are like, this is Scorsese's greatest film. It's better than Goodfellas. Where do you stand on Goodfellas versus Casino? Well, that's you know you've over the line with that. Uh, yeah, you've you've brought horseshit into this podcast with that. <laughs> there it is. Where <laughs> um, I mean, it's you know I I find it entertaining and uh, like you like the the Stone character is probably the one I find most interesting. Um, but where does it sit with his his work for me? Like, yeah, I mean, I I'd rather him, you know, do like a king of king of comedy or Last Temptation After Hours. Like that's like to see him stretch and sort of cover maybe similar terrain. Like you know, you you compared King of Comedy to Taxi Driver, right? But I think uh-huh. those are kind of like there's enough uh, space in between different genres for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, to to sort of come at like you know sort of analyzing like this this weird uh, desire or need for like the individual to like mean more than like everyone else to their detriment, like in those films. Um, I, I'm, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to, unless you're just being contrarian uh, saying that you prefer this one to casino. Maybe it's just your worldview. Like I, mm. I think the main difference for me is Goodfellas and Goodfellas invites you into a world that seems somewhat appealing in that right. you know i like for all jokes we've made i genuinely think boogie nights is more goodfellas 2 than casino mm-hmm. yeah um because they're especially they're, just the arc of those stories is very similar yeah they're yeah. you know these these people are our main characters are brought in to a completely supportive family who are brought down by drugs like their own their own greed like they have a good thing and they have a support system um, but because they're outsiders to society, they are forced to like turn on each other when like mm-hmm. society sort of comes to their doorstep. Casino, I, I, I mean, I just don't care as much about like who's dividing up like the coffers of Las sure. Vegas like gambling money. You know, they, they I think it's a harder sell. Than it doesn't Goodfellas mean as much is. as me. Like Goodfellas. It's not like I've like having experience with the mob, but I can sort of get in the headspace of looking at it like a family, an adoptive family. Casino is just like, yeah, it's just like a time for a time. These people reign, and I know there's the the end of it, like the corporations like came in, um, but it's like it's just more of those like, huh? Well, that's kind of an interesting point in time. Or mm-hmm. anyway, like that's that's right. all I take from it, and it's very stylish and very well done, and of course. great performances. But yeah, like in your wanderings to the idiots of film Twitter. Like what, what, where are you getting? This is, this is somehow. Oh, no, no, like, no one explains it. No, one, no, oh, okay. no one has a All leg right. to stand on. It's just like, it's better. Cause I say so. Uh, and I'm just like, is it though? The one thing well, I'll probably give takes this... more than one tweet. I would yeah, say that's true. The one thing I'll give this movie credit for the only way it's better than Goodfellas is that the great, the late, great Frank Vincent, finally gets his moment mm. in the spotlight, does not die, and takes out Joe Pesci after he was killed by him and beaten up by him in Raging Bull and in Goodfellas. So I do like that. I do like That's that a nice, Scorsese nice gave there. him his, you know, his moment there. Mm-hmm. So so that was good. Especially because the way it's set up, he very easily could be on the other side of that. He lies to his bosses. He lies to these made guys and says everything. He gets a voiceover fine. explaining himself, like, "Yeah, this is dicey territory I'm on. <laughs> yep. I've got to navigate these landmines here." Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like uh, I, I feel like this is like, in a weird way, white collar crime compared to the blue collar aspect oh, of Goodfellas in comparison. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So yeah. to me, it's not as interesting, but. Uh, and I'm not as comfortable with like <laughs> presenting like look at all these rich assholes and watch them tear each other apart like <laughs> for maybe not for three hours maybe for ninety minutes right. you can sustain right. me there. Yeah, and I think this is. I mean, I think I speak for both of us. It's kind of nice to watch a director use the same actors and see those relationships build. But I think sometimes, you know, De Niro's great here. He's fantastic, but it makes me wonder does this movie create more separation from Goodfellas if you don't have De Niro and Pesci here? 
you know, they're both, it's both well-performed. They're both great. I don't know that you could recast it with someone quote unquote better, but I wonder if the movie establishes itself separate from Goodfellas a little bit more if you don't keep casting the same people. Yeah, because uh, to keep making the the reference to Paul Thomas Anderson, especially in his earlier career, did the same thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, Magnolia uh, somehow managed to not be accused of being Boogie Nights too, even though it had a lot of the same same yeah. players involved. Uh, and I'm sure it's just like you know it was just easier to market. You know, you've got yeah, De Niro. Pesci- I mean, look at the fucking Irishman. I mean, that's that's. I, all I've known about We're it back, baby. Years. Goodfellas yeah, three. <laughs> get, the, get the band back together. So, I mean, we'll, we'll probably have this conversation to some extent mm-hmm. again at the end of this month. Um, it doesn't make it, you know, we talked a little bit about it with like the, the Ford month. It doesn't make it suddenly unworthy that no. uh, filmmakers like covering the same terrain. Like I think with like musicians or novelists, uh, people really key into like, oh, they're in like, you know, this is their 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 period where they're really into this sound or they were like into right. this. You know, Cormac McCarthy has his own like little trilogies or whatever. But um, maybe it's with movies being more populous fare or I should say they used to be before Netflix and Scorsese killed cinema. Yes. Yes. I think <laughs> I it's know, also but... I think it's also important to remember that we're watching these movies all back to back, whereas like Goodfellas was what, five years before before casino so it's not like there were you know, two movies in between as well right. so yeah so that that helps a little bit but i think sometimes looking back it can feel just a little bit too similar but that being said i'm still looking forward to the irishman so what does that say about me just bring on the goodfellas extended universe let's do that it. You, you learned nothing that's yes. what it says well that's fair all right so mike you should be really excited for our next episode, because you are on record saying these are the two movies that you are most looking forward to talking about. And those two movies are bringing out the dead and the aviator. So what do we mm. have to look forward to here? Why are you, why are you so excited? These are very, two very different movies. Again, it's another strange pairing, uh, but what, no, you know, no. they're both about, they're both people that are obsessed with how they get around, you know, <laughs> That is how about that? Fair enough. This is the War Machine versus War Horse coming out in you. You're like, what theme can I possibly tie these together? And I'm hoping since this is coming out in November, uh, you can no longer find those episodes. So thank yes. you for the shout out, Dave. That You're does welcome. me no good at this point. You're welcome. All right. So next time, those are the two movies that we will be talking about. Uh, if you would like to hear more from us, follow us on Twitter at DirectedByPod. Or if you're really nice and want to give your hard-earned money to the show, we have a Patreon where you can get some bonus interviews and you can get the episodes early. Uh, if you are one of those people who are just dying to hear these episodes as soon as they're edited, uh, just check out patreon.com slash podcast directed by.